Leaders, you are dismissed for church. Daniel 9 is where we're going today. Daniel 9, so please turn there. It's a lengthy chapter and a complex chapter. So hang with me. Thank you. Hang with me. It's a very, very important chapter and one of the most debated chapters in all of the Bible. So Daniel 9, this is the reading of God's holy word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voices of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants and prophets, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out against us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who, who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The word of the Lord. So the second part of this book of Daniel is dealing with Apocalyptic, apocalyptic visions. 
It's talking about future events. In the last two chapters we have looked at, Daniel's 7 and 8, it, it talked about two visions that Daniel had, and he was revealed uh, to, or from God about these visions, and they were regarding future events that would take place, some shortly after his life, maybe even within his life. So now we get to this third kind of vision. It's, it's really a prayer. And Daniel prays this prayer, and in the middle of the prayer, God reveals to him and gives him an answer to this prayer. But here's what's interesting as you read the very first part of chapter 9. In chapter 9, Daniel was reading the word of God. He was a student of the word of God. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament portions that he had of the law and some of the prophets. And I guarantee that he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 25, I'm sure he read these words that said, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So I'm sure Daniel was reading this passage, and then he probably read Jeremiah 29, verse 10, which reads, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. These two passages that Daniel read talked about a time where God's people would be taken away from their homeland and they would be in exile, in captivity for 70 years. They would wait for 70 years until they could return back to their homeland. Daniel's reading these words and he's thinking, he's doing the math. Oh, that 70 years is almost here. I'm living in the days of exile. In fact, most of my life has been away from my homeland. I grew up in Jerusalem around 15. I was taken from the Babylonians and, and I was taken in, into their city. And I was taught their ways and indoctrinated in their, in their studies of literature and, and magic. And for most of my life, I've lived in this foreign land. 67 years had passed from the moment when Daniel was taken in Babylonian exile and the moment he gave this prayer. But now things have changed for Daniel. He's no longer under Babylonian rule. Verse 1 describes how he's now under Persian, media Persian rule, under King Darius of, of the Medes. And so Daniel's thinking to himself, I'm in my mid-80s, I'm at the end of my life. And I got three years to go. And that 70 years that God promised Jeremiah, I hope I can get there. I'm almost there. Lord, get me there. You know, uh, being Presbyterian, being Reformed, we use these words a lot in this culture that we're in here as Presbyterians. We believe that God is sovereign over all things. We believe that God predestines people before we're even born. He has everything planned. And one of the number one questions I get from people is, well, if God predestines everything, if he controls everything, then why do you pray? Daniel answers that right here. Daniel knows from God's word, hey, 70 years is coming. 70 years is almost there. I'm three years away from, from maybe this thing happening and I can return home. But what does Daniel do? He doesn't just kind of sit back and say, well, God's faithful to his promise, and I can just kind of wait this out, and, and then I'll be taken back to my homeland, hopefully. No, he prays. 
He prays. Why does he pray? He prays because he knows that praying is part of God's purposes. It's part of God's plan. And for God to accomplish his purposes, for God to see his plan through, he uses our prayers to accomplish those things. They are means to the end, to the goal, to reach the goal. Our prayers, sharing the gospel to others, reading the Bible, these are all things that we're all supposed to do. Jesus wants us to do it. He tells us to do it. And God the Father wants us to do it because it's part of his plans. So right here, Daniel knows, hey, I know God's plan. 70 years of captivity, we'll be back into the homeland. So I don't need to just kind of sit around and wait. I need to get on my knees. Why did he do that? Well, one, because he knew that God was using his prayers to accomplish his purposes. But the other reason he did it is nobody else was asking for forgiveness. People continue to live in their sins. And Daniel said, hold on a second. We've got to confess our sins. We've got to be prepared for the homeland. We've got to repent of our sins. And that's essentially what he did in this prayer. John Calvin called it, it's an example, a guide, and kind of common form for the prayer for the church. John Calvin said this prayer written by Daniel and given by Daniel is powerful. And it's a great model for you and for me today as we pray corporately for the Lord to, to forgive our sins. That's why I prayed it earlier. It's a rich, meaningful prayer. You know, oftentimes when I, when I counsel married couples who have had a lot of fights and a lot of disagreements, they come into my office and, and I usually hear one side saying, well, it's all his fault. Then when I go to the, the woman, or, or when I go to the man, he'll say, yeah, it's all her fault. And it's just a back and forth. They, they, you know, nobody takes ownership. They're always pointing fingers. And so my job is to be a, a fair mediator. And I'll listen to both sides, and then I'll just, frankly, just tell them both, hey, it's your fault. Did you know that this is what you're doing wrong? Did you know that this is what you're doing wrong? And they're like, I guess you're right, Pastor. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the big problem. You've got to take ownership of where you have been wronged. What I love about what Daniel did here is he took ownership. He didn't just say, well, the people are not praying. The people are living in sin. He said, we Yours truly, us. And it's just over and over and over again how he, he mentions that. Verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants. Verse 7, we are covered with shame. Verse 8, to us belongs open shame. Verse 9, we have rebelled against him. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Daniel is saying, Lord, we have sinned against you. That's why we're in this mess. That's why we are away from our homeland living under foreign rule and foreign power. And it's been really difficult. But it's because of our sins. Do you know why things are hard right now here in America? It's because of our sins. We have sinned against God. It's not just those people out there. It's not them. It's me. It's us. And until we start really taking ownership of our own sins, we're not going to see change. We're not going to see it. And that's the second part of the prayer. Not only does Daniel acknowledge first that they're sinners, but he acknowledged that sin always brings judgment. Sin always brings judgment. In verses 12 through 14, you see that, particularly verse 13. 
As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight from your truth. He's saying, okay, as I'm reading the word of God, I'm reading Moses, I'm reading the law and the prophets. He's seeing here, and in fact, he's seeing in Leviticus 26, if you go there, Deuteronomy 28, he's seeing in these passages what results when people sin. And there are grave, negative, harmful consequences when people sin. Because God is a just judge who must punish sin. So as Daniel's reading these passages in the Old Testament, he's saying, oh, this is us right now. And nobody seems to give a rip. Nobody seems to care. People, wake up. We have sinned. Do you know why we're living in exile? It's because we have sinned. The same message that Daniel gave to his people through this prayer, I'm giving you to you today. We got to wake up. We have sinned against God. You know why this nation is drifting from God? It's because we have sinned. It's the consequences of our sin. God will bring judgment. But the third part of the prayer is where it's all coming to conclusion, and that is, Daniel pleads for God to show his mercy. He pleads for God to show his mercy. Do you know the difference between judgment and mercy? Judgment is we get what we deserve. Mercy is we don't get what we deserve. Judgment, we get what we deserve. When we sin against God, when we disobey him, when we do things we shouldn't do, Yeah, there's going to be consequences for that. There's judgment. We get what we deserve. But God, who is rich in love and mercy, he shows us his mercy by not giving us what we deserve. And then he gives us what we don't deserve, which is grace. He gives us an undeserved gift of grace. And that's what Daniel is praying for. He's praying that God would show them his mercy. Verse 17 Therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. It's said that Daniel earlier in this text, it said that he covered himself with ashes and sackcloth. That was just a symbol of humiliation and of humility, of of just utter dependence on God, saying, Lord, I I cry out for you to show mercy to me. And to us, your people. Because nobody else has really taken ownership of their sins. Lord, I'm taking ownership for our sins. My sins and your people's sins. Forgive us because I am longing to go back to my homeland. I'm tired of being in captivity for 67 years. Are you tired right now? Are you tired? Well, if you are, I just encourage you. Confess your sin. Plead for God to show his mercy to you and know that he's with you. Know that he's with you. You know what's fascinating about this passage is as Daniel is praying this gut-riching, heartfelt prayer of confession, as he's just pleading to the Father to show his mercy, God interrupts him. This is what people call the interrupted prayer of the Bible. Isn't that funny? Could you imagine just in the middle of your prayer, God just interrupts you with an angel, Gabriel, and says, oh, I got an answer for you. That's what happens here. Daniel 9, 
Daniel is praying this prayer between 3 and 4 in the afternoon because it was an evening sacrifice. That was the the ritual that Daniel had. He wasn't making sacrifices because there was no temple, but he was praying regularly between 3 and 4. And between 3 and 4, he's praying this heartfelt, gut-riching prayer, and Gabriel shows up. And he gives Daniel an answer, not that Daniel was expecting. So let's look at the answer, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Here's the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. There's a lot here in just a few minutes that I got. But let's let's go back to what I was saying. Daniel was praying this prayer, and then Gabriel shows up kind of out of nowhere. And Gabriel says, I'm going to reveal to you the meaning of or the answer to your prayer. And I'm doing it because you're greatly loved. You, Daniel, are a child of God. And he loves you. And he wants you to know what's about to go down. You know, it's interesting that as you look at verses 24 through 27, This is perhaps the most debated passage in all of the Bible. One author calls it a dismal swamp. I took several hours looking at it this week. And the ancient father, Jerome, said that there were nine different interpretations. Did you hear me? Nine. My head's about to explode. Nine interpretations, and if you have questions about this afterwards, talk to Jim Cofield or Joel McCall. No, in, in all seriousness, nine interpretations, and here's the thing. As you look at these interpretations, you're going to find three common themes within the nine interpretations, and I'll tell you where I come from. I'll tell you my interpretation. I told you that at the beginning when we were getting into this apocalyptic literature. I told you I'm going to tell you where I stand on this because I think it's important for you to know, and at the same time... I'm going to explain that there are other views out there where we can agree to disagree. But the three main views out there within the nine is that first, this meaning could be applying to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. 
If you don't know who that is, listen to the sermon last week. I described this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who came on the scene many years after Daniel had died, and he set up a pig on the altar of the temple, and he, and he set up a statue in, with worshiping Zeus in the Lord's temple. He just desecrated the temple. So some people say this 70-week period is referring to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's not my view, but some people have that view. The second view is that this could be pointing forward first to the coming of Christ and then to the events of the end of time. A lot of dispensationalists would have this view, premillennialists would have this view, where they would say, yes, this is referring to the end. That's not my view either. The third view happens to be my view, and I'll explain why. That this could be referring to when Jesus came, the coming of Christ, the completion of his sacrificial work, and the destruction of the Jerusalem or of the temple in Jerusalem. That happens to be my view. That this in Daniel 9 has already happened. A lot of people are saying, no, 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 this is talking about the end. I'm gonna say, no, 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 it's talking about it's already happened. Let me explain it. So do you remember that passage when when Jesus told Peter about forgiveness and he said, forgive 70 times seven? Y'all remember that passage? Well, when you do the math, it's 70 times seven is 490. Was Jesus saying, okay, when you, when you sin 491 times, then you can stop forgiving the person? No. He's saying you forgive endless. There are some people, when they look at these numbers, they say it's all about symbolism. I don't happen to agree with that, but some people say that, and they would say, you know, it's all about symbolism. Just like when Jesus said to Peter, forgive 70 times 7, so Gabriel is telling Daniel, there's 70 weeks. This is all symbolic. I don't believe those of you who hold the symbolic view are outside of biblical orthodoxy. I just don't. I actually take this as more literal. I take it as more literal. And here's where I go. 490 years is the 70-week period. How do I get there? Well, every week totals up uh, to essentially that of seven years. Uh, So you think about that, and 70 weeks is a total of 490 years. Gabriel divided up the 490-year period in three ways when you really unpack verses 24 through 27. Hang with me. He first talks about seven weeks, the first section, which is 49 years. He then talks about 62 weeks, the second section, which is 433 years. And then he talks about the final week, which is seven years, 490 years total. Within the 490 years that was going to happen very soon after Daniel prayed this prayer, There was going to be six things that would take place within that 490 years, particularly at the end. And this is where verse 24 comes in. There are three negative things and there are three positive things. The three negative things that will occur will be that the transgression will be finished. There would be sin that would be put an end to. And and there would be atonement for iniquity. The three negatives. The three positive things that would occur within the 490 years, particularly at the end, is that to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a holy of holies. Okay, so I bring all this up because a lot of people have just debated about when did all this this time happen? When did this take place? And here's the thing within that 490 years, there's a lot of different debate about where this all started. 
Where I, where I particularly think it happened is, is that when we see in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus, he issued a decree in the first chapter, Cyrus of Persia, he issued a decree for God's people to return to their homeland. I bring this up because this fits into the 70 years, and Daniel was hoping 70 years would come and the people of God would return. Well, there was a new king in town, no longer Babylonian rule, it's now Persian rule, and Cyrus issues a decree for the people to return to their homeland. The problem, though, is that only 20,000 of God's people returned. Only 20,000. Why only 20,000? Why such a small number? Well, the people were getting comfortable living in a foreign land. They said, we like this. We don't want to go back home. We like where we are. So then you fast forward several years later, and you go to Ezra chapter 7, and a new king, Persian king, comes in. His name is Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes, uh, he issues another decree for the people to return back to the homeland. And more and more people came. And not only was the temple being rebuilt, but the walls were being rebuilt at this time. After this took place, that was the first seven weeks of 49 years. After these events took place and the people of God went back to their homeland, there was going to be a long period of trouble, as Gabriel describes. 434 years of trouble. God's people return to their homeland, they're back in the temple, but there's just a lot of struggle. Why? Because not only are they under foreign rule of the Persians and the Medes, but then shortly after that, the Macedonians and the Greeks would come in and take over, and the people would suffer. They would live in agony, even in their own homeland. And then after that, the Romans would come in, and there would be a lot of persecution and suffering in those times. And then you get to the final period, the one week of seven years. So you've gone through the seven weeks of years. You've gone through the 62 weeks of years. Then you get to this final one. And right here, you learn about Christ. It says here, after the 62 weeks, verse 26, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. What in the world is he talking about here? Who's the anointed one who's coming? Jesus. Jesus would come. And when Jesus would come, what would happen to him? He would be cut off. How would he be cut off? He would be crucified. What would happen shortly after Jesus was crucified and then ascended to heaven? A.D. 70 would happen. General Titus of Rome would come in and completely destroy the temple of Jerusalem. No more temple. A.D. 70. So that's the final period of one week of seven years, the final period. So all of the 70 weeks total, 490 years, roughly, right? Gabriel is telling Daniel, this is about to happen. Not what Daniel was expecting. But here's why I hold this view. I'm a firm believer of context. That's why I'm preaching verse after verse. I'm preaching verse by verse through the whole book of Daniel. Why am I doing that? So you can see the bigger picture. And when you look back at Daniel's chapter 7 and Daniel's chapter 8, there's a common theme, and that is the visions that Daniel had would be fulfilled shortly after his life of more kingdoms to come. Those two visions he already had. Now a third prayer that was answered, technically a vision, it's a similar consistent theme. 
that shortly after your time, there will be more empires that will come and God's people would suffer. Now, here's the most debated verse, is verse 27. And for those of you who love studying this stuff, some of you might be squirming in your seats. Verse 27, it says here, or it goes on in verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So there are people in, our Christ, in Christian circles who would say, this is talking about the very end. And this desolator is the Antichrist, and he's going to make a covenant with a political agreement with some of the Jews. And he's the one who will put an end to the renewed sacrifices and offerings in the last day by destroying the Jerusalem temple. So people would read Daniel 9 and say, this hasn't happened. This is going to happen. The Antichrist is going to come. He's going to make an agreement with a political power. He's going to rally some of the Jewish people, and they're going to destroy the temple once again. I disagree with that view, humbly. And why is that? Well, again, when you go back to verse 24, six things had to happen during this period. Those six things have happened. They've happened. There's no more temple. Jesus is the temple. John 1.14, he came, he tabernacled himself. He came, the temple came. That's why the curtain was torn in two. We don't need to go to a temple anymore. We have the temple in us, Jesus Christ. This has already happened, my friends. So I bring this up because Jesus tells us that there's a new covenant that he brings in. It's a new covenant that gives us right now a lot of hope. Daniel was being reminded by Gabriel that what has happened to him and to all his people is really going to happen again. The temple will be destroyed. The people will live in sin. They'll be under exile. They'll be in hard times. If you think about our day today, we're in hard times. But here's the hope I want to give you as we approach this table. The bitter must come before the sweet. I'm finishing up my first doctoral class on the Puritans. And John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And the theme of the book is the bitter must come before the sweet. Daniel was living in some really bitter times. But God reminded him through an angel that the sweet is coming. That one would be cut off. He would put an end to indignation, to sin and death. And he would come again. Well, my friends, you might be living in some bitter times right now. But that's part of it, the hardship of sin and life. But the sweet is coming. As Daniel was waiting for the sweet to happen and go back to his homeland, he was reminded of this. I'm reminding you today. So as we prepare our hearts to dine with the Lord, be reminded that even though you might be in a time of hardship, he's with you and he's going to come again and make all things new. Let's pray.